Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting May 20th, 2016, we hear from World Policy Institute fellow Jonathan Crystal about expectations for U.S. foreign policy with Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton as president. His recent blog post on the subject is headlined, The Sky is Falling! Exclamation point. We'll also point out top features in the current WPJ Spring issue, cover line Black Lives Matter Everywhere. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, you've no doubt heard by now that President Obama will visit Hiroshima at the end of next week's trip to Vietnam and Japan. Hiroshima, of course, was the first of two cities destroyed by American atomic bombs. The atomic bomb brought World War II to an end, and ever since, Japan's military has been a defensive force. That is now changing, a big switch after 70 years. With America's blessing, Japan is now beginning to build offensive military capabilities. It's a result of growing threats from China and North Korea. The North Koreans keep testing nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles, and China continues to build artificial islands in disputed parts of the South China Sea. That could, in theory, cut off the flow of oil and trade, undermining Japan's economy. All of this is reason enough, conservative Prime Minister Shinzo Abe thinks, for Japan to rearm. Speaking of North Korea, Donald Trump, he will be the Republican nominee for president, says if he wins, he'll talk with Kim Jong-un about Kim's nuclear program. Trump has called Kim unstable and a maniac and has called on China to lean on Kim to modify his behavior. Trump's quandary, his bashing China over trade, might not exactly put Beijing in the mood to do anything for a President Trump if he actually wins in November. With some exceptions, the U.S. foreign policy establishment is backing Hillary Clinton in the presidential race. Many find Trump's so-called America First policy alarming. It calls for, among other things, a scaling back of American commitments overseas, including NATO, which Trump has called, quote, obsolete. Trump hopes to change minds. He is now stepping up his outreach and has more foreign policy speeches planned over the next few weeks. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. I am skeptical of international unions that tie us up and bring America down. At some point, we have to say, you know what? We're better off if Japan protects itself against this maniac in North Korea. We're better off, frankly, if South Korea is going to start to protect itself. Saudi Arabia? We have Saudi Arabia, absolutely. Them Can too. I be honest with you? It's going to happen anyway. It's going to happen anyway. It's, it's only a question of time. The United States was asked to support the Europeans and the Arab partners that we had. And we did a lot of due diligence about whether we should or not, and eventually, yes, I recommended and the president decided that we would support uh, the action to protect civilians on the ground, and that led to the overthrow of Gaddafi. A more effective coalition air campaign is necessary 
but not sufficient. And we should be honest about the fact that to be successful, airstrikes will have to be combined with ground forces actually taking back more territory from ISIS. Like President Obama, I do not believe that we should again have 100,000 American troops in combat in the Middle East. Call it shock and guffaw. That's what Donald Trump's crude campaign statements about Mexicans, Muslims, and maniac North Korea have produced. But it's his broader, simplistic, often contradictory, and ill-informed view of America's overall role in the world that has many experts far more seriously disturbed, reversing decades of Republican principle on key diplomatic, military, and mutual security policies. Days ago, he even did an about-face to suggest that as president, he could talk with Pyongyang's diminutive dictator after all. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, by contrast, is an old hand on the global scene. But Democratic primary opponent Bernie Sanders is hardly the only critic of judgments that she's made along the way, especially on matters of international intervention from Iraq to Syria to Libya and beyond. What Trump or Clinton presidencies might mean for American foreign policy in the complex and challenging years to come is considered in a recent blog post by World Policy Institute fellow Jonathan Crystal, also a senior fellow at the Bard College Center for Civic Engagement. The headline is, The Sky is Falling! Exclamation point. And we discussed it recently for this podcast. Jonathan Crystal, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thanks, I'm glad to be here. You begin by arguing that the greatest challenge for Clinton as president is different than that for President Trump. Start with what you see her facing. Well, you know, Hillary faces a very wide range of challenges. I think the biggest are probably um, working with Russia in Syria and the Middle East while opposing them everywhere else in the world, working with China on economic issues while opposing them uh, their geopolitical expansion, dealing with Iran, dealing with North Korean nuclear weapons, an increasingly authoritarian Turkey, uh, ISIS and, and the terrorist threat, the Syrian civil war, which is, is in some ways a miniature world war, the ongoing refugee crisis, Libya, um, the European Union, is, and the potential for the uh, UK leaving is uh, could be tremendously difficult and destabilizing. And of course, there's America's uh, a crumbling infrastructure, which is itself a foreign policy um, concern that I think gets overlooked. And by contrast, what do you see as the greatest challenge for President Trump? Well, you know, for Trump, is he, all of these issues will still be there, but they will be set against a backdrop of global instability and realignment on a scale of which we've never seen. Because while Hillary Clinton uh, uh, will face a wide range of security threats, a Trump presidency will itself be the biggest security threat. Uh, and it will create a whole new set of issues to deal with on top of all of these. Uh, and I think that it's, it's, it has the potential for an incredible danger um, for, for all of us, really. Uh, you call Trump's idea of the U.S. global role as a mafia protection racket. Donald as Don? Right. So you know, he has said that basically everyone has to pay up if they want U.S. protection. So you know, he, if the European allies, the Eastern European allies are not doing enough, they have to pay more or we're going to get out. Uh, South Korea and Japan, they have to pay more or we're going to get out. Uh, Saudi Arabia, he said explicitly, you know, they have to do more, they have to pay more, or we're going to get out. And, you know, I'm not a, um, 
a great supporter of Saudi Arabia. But even in that case, um, let alone Eastern Europe or, or East Asia, those are very dangerous statements to say because you know, it, it shows for, for a wide variety of reasons. One, it shows a lack of understanding um, that these relationships benefit us, don't just benefit uh, these, these other states, and we're not doing it out of the goodness of our heart. Um, and it also uh, has the potential for if, if any one of these, if he follows through on any one of these um, threats, then everyone else has to rethink what does it mean to be an ally of the United States. I think they're already thinking that to some degree, in part um, because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and in part for uh, of the Obama administration's, um, rightly or wrongly, the perception that they've moved away from Saudi Arabia and Israel to some extent. Uh, and Trump actually just saying that we'll rethink NATO is itself very dangerous. Um, and I am not saying that these, some of these in some of these cases states shouldn't pay more um, or contribute more um, to their own defense or to international uh, issues in terms of refugees or other things, but our support for them cannot be contingent on that uh, and because it is in our interest to do so. And I, think, uh, I, I just don't think Trump understands that, just as I don't think he really understands anything about uh, international affairs at all. He doesn't have a knowledge of history. He doesn't have knowledge of how um, diplomacy works. I'm not sure he knows what diplomacy means, frankly. Um, he doesn't really uh, understand how these things are all linked. You know, I get very worked up about this. I could, I could go on, but I'll, I'll let you get to some specifics. In the case of the NATO alliance and some others, you say Trump is ignorant of or ignores the equitable formula for contributions and cost sharing that's already in effect. Right. So, you know, in NATO, he keeps saying that we pay a disproportionate share. Well, that's not wrong in and of itself. Um, we pay the largest amount of the NATO budget, but we also are the wealthiest country. Um, and it is determined by a gross national income. We pay 22%, and that's just about what we should pay. And the other states that pay less have smaller economies, and, and it, it's what they should pay. Now, what he will say is that we have such a uh, massive um, a defense budget, but we also deal with the entire world. And a country like... Um, Germany or France or let alone Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania, they have much smaller defense budgets, but they also are dealing with primarily one, one threat uh, from the east uh, and, and um, their own homeland defense. And so it's a very different situation. So to say that these states aren't paying their share, well, you could argue that. But to say that we are somehow paying a massively disproportionate amount is just not true. Some specific scenarios and how you think Trump might respond based on his admittedly uh, continually shifting views. First, a Russian threat to the Baltic states. Well, I think that's a great example that shows how these things are all interlinked. So right now, if we look at the last year or so, Russia has um, launched cyber attacks against Estonia, they have run submarines up against the uh, Finnish maritime boundary. They have uh, violated NATO airspace over all of the Baltics. They've kidnapped an Estonian border guard um, uh, from the uh, Estonia-Russia border. And 
in my view, we haven't quite done enough uh, to shore up the defenses of the Baltics. But let's say, let's say Russia tried to do more. Uh, let's say they actually violated a land boundary. Well, I, my view is that Trump will think, based on what he said, well, what does it matter? You know, what, what does it matter? That, why would we go to war with Russia uh, over Estonia? Um, what does it matter to us? And he has made clear his uh, uh, affinity, let's say, for Putin, um, who I think is a fellow strongman, basically. I think Trump has shown that he is, that uh, appeals to him. Uh, his advisors have a lot of ties. His foreign policy advisors have ties to uh, Russia. They all t tend to kind of fall in the, the category of Russian apologists, and there aren't t really too many of those, so it's kind of a, 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 an interesting phenomenon that he's managed to find um, so many. And he'll say, well, you know, maybe we are not as committed to uh, the defense of the Baltic states as, as we should be. Well, even if he says that, that will be heard around the world. And so Taiwan will have to wonder, well, are the, is the U.S. really committed to the defense of Taiwan? South Korea and Japan will have to wonder, are, we re are the United States really committed to, the to our defense? Saudi Arabia will have to rethink things. The Philippines and other Southeast Asian allies will have to rethink things. Because if we uh, uh, say that a U.S. guarantee, security guarantee, a U.S. alliance guarantee, particularly an alliance that's been around for decades, um, is not worth the paper it's printed on, then that is a tremendous, presents a tremendously uh, uh, chaotic future where everyone is in a scramble to find some sort of new uh, benefactor or patron in the case of smaller states. And states will have to think, well, do we want to bandwagon with Russia and China? Uh, and other kind of revisionist states and hope that we can get a better deal, which I think is kind of ironic since Trump's whole thing is, is deals. Um, or do we want to form some other sort of, of non-US-centric world order? Maybe Trump would like that. Maybe his thing is really America first and we should concentrate on ourselves and let everyone else form some other sort of alliance. But I don't think that it is in our interest to be excluded from the world. Um, and, you know, the Baltics, again, I think are uh, another good example because it wouldn't take that much for the U.S. to, to shore them up. I mean, we have a small fraction of the number of troops in Europe generally that we did at the end, uh, during the Cold War, not just at the end of World War II. Um, and all we really need to do, uh, at least according to a recent uh, RAND Corporation report, is you know, a couple of additional battalions in Eastern Europe. We had 20 battalions at the height of the Cold War. We have around three now, although that's supposed to be increased uh, in all of Europe. Um, won't take much to, to change the calculus for Putin. And I'm not saying that Russia is about to invade the Baltics. That's not exact. That's not true at all. But um, Trump saying that we are not going to guarantee their security, if he says something like that, that certainly makes it much more appealing um, for, for Putin to, to cross those boundaries, to cross those red lines. Um, so I think that he, Trump misses that all of these things are connected. Indeed, uh, to the degree that Trump's words, uh, even before any action or inaction, uh, could prompt uh, realignment uh, and nuclear proliferation, if you follow his line about uh, letting uh, Korea and Japan get their own nuclear umbrella, 
In fact, some already see blowback from his call for a moratorium on Muslims entering the U.S., though, though he has begun to backpedal on that. That's right. I mean, and I think you, you bring up two issues there. I mean, the nuclear proliferation uh, is one that I think is also very important. I think one of the great ironies of, of, of Trump is that while I think he would be very willing to cede large swaths of the world to, um, to a, a Russian sphere of influence or a Chinese sphere of influence or whoever, I also think as a kind of thin-skinned uh, narcissist an egomaniac who will respond to any perceived threat by lashing out, or perceived, not threat, perceived slight or personal insult by lashing out, well, that is not someone that I would want in charge of nuclear weapons. Um, because I think that while it is highly likely we will all survive a Trump presidency, it is the first presidential candidate in my lifetime, probably in all of our lifetimes, where I don't think the odds of that are 100%. And I think having someone who has shown his level of ig both ignorance and narcissism and of, among a wide range of qualities, having that kind of person in charge of a nuclear arsenal, I think, is, is horrifying. And he has also shown a willingness to allow other states to get nuclear weapons. It's almost an encouragement. And, you know, one of these things that... Over, overturning decades of Japanese policy and our policy on proliferation. Um, and, you know, he, I think it's this lack of knowledge of, of history of all of these things that, that I think is, is key. Because one of the reasons why people, and people haven't really been saying this until Trump, it's easy to say, well, we'll rethink NATO because NATO's worked so well. It's easy to say, well, we'll rethink our, um, our position in Japan because Japan has been a peaceful state you know, for decades now. But these things were put in place, not just uh, uh, U.S. policy over since the end of the Second World War, was not just about countering the Soviet Union, it was also about preventing uh, a militarization of Germany and Japan again. And that's also worked incredibly well, and Trump seems to be willing to overturn that. Um, and I don't think that that's not what those people want, and that's not what we should want. Um, on the issue of, of the moratorium on Muslims entering the United States, right, he has begun to backpedal on it. Um, we've seen it come up now in uh, terrorist recruitment videos by Boko Haram. It's been mentioned, I believe, by ISIS in their publications. Uh, and it is also something that runs uh, unconstitutional, first of all. It runs counter to um, American values, I think, and it... Um, makes us, you know, uh, you know and, and it also makes us look kind of dumb. Um, and those kind of things matter as well. It is the first time that, um, and you have foreign leaders saying that about this policy. Uh, David Cameron reiterated that um, a couple of times, including uh, just earlier today, uh, that this was a, a stupid policy. And Trump's, of course, reaction to that is, well, I don't think I'm going to have a good relationship with David Cameron. Uh, you know, basically, he's saying that because he called him stupid. And it's, it's a very childish and ignorant uh, perspective. Uh, I actually hope, my hope right now is that international leaders, um, as I think they've started to do a little bit, a break with... Uh, a decades, if not centuries-long tradition of not getting involved in our or other states' 
internal politics and just say, you know, this is not productive. These are dangerous policies. We will find it very hard to work with them. Now, I understand that there can be a backlash because Americans don't like other places telling us what to do. But I think it will lend uh, a more, even more gravitas to the idea that this is not someone who is suitable to be president, and this is someone who we, the world is primarily afraid of. Again, you know, it, it, I go back and forth about that because some Americans might think, oh, it's great if everyone's afraid of us. But, you know, I don't think that's, I don't think that's right. I think it, it will provoke balancing against us if, everything's, if everyone's afraid of us. What about international fallout from Trump's economic vision, more aggressive than he seems to be on strictly military matters? Right, and, and this is another great point. And it's also, and they're, again, all related, because it goes to this idea of just violating agreements and withdrawing us from treaties. You know, Trump's view is, well, everyone is beating us. Everyone is getting some sort of better deal. Everyone is pulling one over on us. And, you know, I think he either misses because he is uh, uh, unaware of or just misleading that, you know, global trade is now primarily uh, um, institutionalized through the World Trade Organization and through uh, a variety of multilateral agreements. And so it's not like there, there's not some like massive deal that we strike with each country. Uh, that can happen in certain circumstances, but if he just uh, says, well, China is getting one over on us. They're not allowing X to be done there. It's costing us jobs. So I'll throw up a tariff on them. Well, you know, these are some things that actually Trump could probably do as president and get away with legally inside the United States. But if he raises uh, uh, tariff rates on Chinese goods the way that he's threatened to, that will harm American consumers because prices on Chinese goods will go up dramatically in the United States, um, or it will harm the manufacturers themselves if they, if they uh, absorb the cost. And many of those manufacturers are U.S. companies that are manufacturing in China, so that will harm U.S. Um, interests as well. And there is a dispute settlement mechanism within the World Trade Organization and generally within most of these um, multilateral trade agreements that will actually allow the other states involved to put tariffs on us. And we are a major exporter. And I, I don't know if Trump thinks he can threaten his way out of that um, or if he just doesn't know that that can happen, both of which are, are bad. And if he thinks he can threaten his way out of that, again, it goes to this principle of people starting to wonder, is the, are the United, is the United States a crazy country? Is this crazy? Because people are kind of willing to allow us to kind of run the show on the global stage because we're not outright maniacs. They might totally disagree with major policies like Iraq uh, and other Middle East things, but they know, you know, we're not going to invade Mexico or Canada. We're not going to do something totally crazy. And then you have someone like Trump come along talking about building a wall on the border and basically making economic threats against our, our southern neighbor and other states. And then it starts people wondering, well, maybe they really are crazy. Um, particularly if we actually vote for this person. Of course, we have to remember that no less a Republican foreign policy pro than Richard Nixon during the Vietnam War called the 
uh, called for the madman theory of foreign policy. I, I want the North Vietnamese to believe I might do anything to stop the war, Nixon said. We'll just slip the word to them that, for God's sake, you know, Nixon is obsessed about communism. We can't restrain him when he's angry, and Ho Chi Minh himself will be in Paris in two days begging for peace. So there is a history there. Well, I think there's two, two, two points about that. One is that Nixon also wasn't a madman. Um, and so, you know, he, there was a history, he had a history and he had a track record that people could pay attention to and think, well, maybe he's willing to do X, but he's not willing to do Y. There's certain parameters he might operate in. And Trump has no, no such track record. So I, I, but the second thing is, if I do think um, that there is a benefit to uncertainty, I think I've... I've um, said on, on this podcast once before that I think that Obama has been too predictable um, and uh, particularly in the case of Ukraine, I think Putin knew that we weren't going to do anything uh, substantial and so he was able to, to, to go for it and I think if there had been some element of uncertainty there, it would have been a much harder call for him. But um, So I think you don't want to telegraph every move you're going to make. But if you show that you have no boundaries and that there are no limits and there's no line you won't cross, that kind of goes, I don't think that's what, uh, uh, I can't imagine that Nixon could have imagined someone like Trump <laughs> when he said that. Um, that's, that's, that's what I would say about that. <laughs> well, let's turn to Clinton. Hardly the ideal foreign policy candidate either, you say, despite her experience as a senator and secretary of state. How do you see her track record and judgment overall, beginning with her vote on the Iraq war? Well, you know, I, exactly. I don't think um, Hillary Clinton is the ideal candidate, although I would, um, I think there's almost no one less ideal than, than Trump. Um, and she, I don't think she exercises great judgment in foreign policy, but she does have deep knowledge. I mean, her vote on the Iraq war was clearly an error in judgment. I think that she has admitted that, um, and, I think, and I think that that's probably genuine. And unlike with so much of what Hillary Clinton says, I don't see that as a purely political calculation. I think that she, like so many of us, including myself, um, supported the war at the beginning and uh, turned against it at some point and realized that this was actually one of the greatest mistakes in American foreign policy history. But then, you know, the interesting thing about that is I think she followed it up by being um, the, leading the charge for what I think is the second biggest uh, mistake in US, uh, recent U.S. foreign policy history on the biggest since the Iraq war, which was the intervention in Libya. Um, so I think her, the, her, the intervention in Libya, I think, was tremendously destabilizing. I think it um, was a danger in terms of proliferation, showing that we could not um, be trusted to adhere to our agreements with states on uh, uh, eliminating their weapons of mass destruction program, which we said we would welcome Gaddafi back into the community of nations if he did. He got rid of his WMD program, and Hillary led the charge to, to take him out uh, from behind. She led the charge from behind. But still, uh, I think it was a mistake. I think that um, her judgment on the Russian reset, uh, which she also was an architect of, 
uh, also a major policy that did not go particularly well. And you know, I, I, I don't like ever really to parrot uh, anyone's talking points, but you know, I think that with the but the, the email issue, um, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know if she broke the law. I think that remains to be seen. But I do think that if you know you're going to run for president and you play fast and loose with, uh, uh, with something like your, your own email server and, and bypassing government servers and all of this stuff, that shows at the very least horrifyingly bad political judgment. Why would she think this wouldn't come out? Uh, I think that the Republicans, by going after her so much on Benghazi, which is, I think, a kind of non, a, not a real issue, um, for Hillary Clinton at least, uh, overplayed their hand and distracted so much from the email issue, which I actually think is a real issue. So I don't think that her, her judgment is great. I don't think her track record is great. But she knows a lot. She knows a lot of people. That's important. Her tone is not bad. And tone is not everything, but it's not nothing. Uh, whereas uh, Trump's tone is, is one of aggression and violence, while also uh, uh, withdrawal and insularity. So it's, it, Trump's is really everything to everyone, is what he's trying to do. But, um, but Hillary, uh, uh, while I don't think she has the greatest track record, uh, it, they're not really comparable. I mean, it, it is, she knows so much more. How do you see her future actions being shaped by her history, her tendencies, and the special challenge she might face if she does become the nation's first female president? Will there be a natural tendency to act even tougher? It's a very good question. I mean, ultimately, we're never going to know the answer to that because we won't, we won't know the difference between how, how she would have been if there had been a, a, a woman before her. But I think that it will seem that way, whether, whatever the reason is, uh, for it, because I think she will be tougher than, than Obama, and I think that she has more of an inclination towards intervention um, than the current president. And so I think that she will be more likely to send troops into Syria. She's basically alluded that, to that already. She has, um, you know, the major long-form journalism and memoirs that have come out in the last few years seem to show that she is usually the one advocating for intervention. And so I think that it will seem as if she will be tougher. Um, she will have a more um, uh, aggressive foreign policy. And I don't, I don't use the word aggressive as a positive or negative, um, just as a statement of fact. Um, and it might seem that she is doing so because she's the first female president, but I don't, um, but I don't know if we'll know that that's true. And I think that because we have a lot of knowledge of her past positions, and they seem to be all, uh, uh, again, more interventionist than the current president. And so uh, it won't be a radical change, I don't think, from her, her previous positions, even though I don't think those positions have been particularly great. You mentioned earlier the, the uh, suggestion that uh, the U.S. should increase uh, its forces in Eastern Europe. 
to prevent, uh, deter an attack on the Baltics and, and more Russian expansionism. Some critics say sending more uh, American troops there is unnecessary because Russian forces are not as strong as they seemed against weak opposition in Ukraine, virtually none in Crimea. Others say fear of a large-scale U.S. nuclear counterstrike is the only real deterrent. Uh, what's your reaction to those arguments, and what do you think Hillary's might be? Well, you know, that, those, the, the idea that um, Russian forces are not as strong and we don't need to send more U.S. troops to Eastern Europe, that might be right, but it also might be wrong. And the cost of sending U.S. troops to Eastern Europe is relatively low. Um, we're not talking about sending troops into a war zone. We're actually talking about sending them into fairly interesting and, and fun places. We're talking about states that actually want a greater U.S. presence there. And, you know, there are not that many states that really want a greater U.S. military presence. Um, but uh, states that want a greater presence there, states that are safe to be in, we're not really putting them in harm's way. Um, and we're still talking about a very small number compared to the historic norm. And so I think the cost of doing that is very low. Um, I mean, the, the dollar cost, the mental cost, and the uh, physical cost, um, I think, is, is makes it well worth it, even if it is ultimately unnecessary. Um, but we also won't know. Well, we won't know. It's hard to tell how necessary it is once they're there, because I don't think anything will happen once they're there. And it might not happen even if they're not there. On the nuclear issue, though, you know, that is a, also a reasonable thing to say, but I, uh, one thing that I think is true um, that, that Trump would say is that I don't think we're going to fight a full-scale nuclear war over the Baltic states. So I think in the event, the unlikely but not totally impossible event of a Russian invasion of the Baltics, the idea that we would launch a full-scale nuclear attack if they uh, adjust over those three states, I think is unlikely. And I think that Putin probably realizes that that's unlikely. And it is much more likely that we would fight a conventional ground war there um, than to end the world over, over the Baltics. No, no offense to those states. Uh, so I think that the deterrence that we need there is a greater conventional force. Because right now, we are... And by we, I mean the NATO alliance, not, not just the U.S., we are massively um, outmanned and outgunned um, on the European continent. One last question. It's not in your piece, but I wonder whether you have any concern about Hillary as president with her continuing intimate connection with the Clinton Foundation, all of its worldwide operations, connections, donations. Uh, you know, it's a potential source of of, of scandal in the campaign, but I wonder if you think of it as a as a positive or a negative for an American president to have such a close association with such a globe girdling operation as the Clinton Foundation. That's a great a great question. Um, you know, in another election cycle against a different candidate, um, and it might concern me. It would probably concern me uh, greatly. Uh, you know, the long history and entanglement with other states um, is, I have been framing as a positive um, through this interview, but I also think um, that there is great potential for it to be a negative. But if we look at the alternative, um, there is no, it doesn't matter. That's what I would say. And I see a lot of arguments against Hillary. 
um, for a lot of very valid reasons. But ultimately, even if 99% of the criticism of her and worry about her is exactly accurate, it, it, it doesn't matter to me in the end because preventing Trump's presidency, I think, is the greatest political cause that has existed probably in my lifetime. And, you know, I called the article The Sky is Falling in part because preventing Trump from having nuclear launch codes and being in control of the most powerful military that's ever existed um, is more important than any ethical lapses Hillary Clinton might have had, even than any criminal lapses that Hillary Clinton might have had. None of it is comparable to the potential danger of a Trump presidency, um, both not just on the nuclear weapons, so that's ultimately I think the most important thing, um, but on all of these issues and the potential for um, uh, aggression from a wide variety of states um, who right now are contained by the United States, in fact contained so well that we don't even think about that as the reason. Um, and the uh, uh, domestic and foreign implications of his policies are so potentially catastrophic that I say even if Hillary Clinton was running for president from a federal prison cell, um, she would still be, uh, I think, the, the better choice here. We won't get into the possible Bernie Sanders option. We'll leave that for another time if it becomes more realistic. Jonathan Crystal, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Always glad to be here. World Policy Institute fellow Jonathan Crystal is also a senior fellow at the Bard College Center for Civic Engagement. His recent post about the Trump and Clinton approaches to foreign policy is headlined, The Sky is Falling! Exclamation point. Featured in the current WPJ Spring issue, Black Lives Matter Everywhere, you'll find articles about black power in the French banlieues, about South Africa's racial revolution, in theory, and about building black solidarity across national borders. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on a call for safety first as we enter the age of artificial intelligence. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.